In this episode, I speak with Professor Noam Chomsky. I had about 25 minutes with Noam for this interview, which I'm very grateful to have. Um, as I say in the beginning, I say that, you know, he's a very influential figure in my life, and I try to keep it rather short. It is very true, though. I mean, he is. He's incredibly influential in my political awakening, I guess, or my, my political education, my understanding of propaganda, of how the media works, of how U.S. foreign policy works, what the U.S. empire is as a force in the world, and what capitalism is as well. You know, part of my uh, anti-capitalist education came directly from Noam Chomsky when I was a teenager. So I, I just want to say that of all the people that I've wanted to interview on this project, and I've interviewed a lot of great people that I never thought I would get the chance to speak to, Noam was definitely one of those people. And I feel really, really lucky that I got the chance to speak with him. Uh, I'll just say very briefly what we discuss in this short interview is, first, I'd bring up the question of, uh, you know, what is the role of the U.S. military right now in the world? Are there any other powers that are coming in to take up the role of the U.S. military? For instance, with this recent so-called withdrawal of U.S. troops in Syria, particularly from northeastern Syria in the Kurdish-held areas, uh, what does that mean within the broader uh, scope of, of history within the United States empire, its uh, expansion or decline? Uh, Noam answers that question very well. And then from there, we move into a discussion about journalism. And I bring up the case of Julian Assange uh, being in Belmarsh Prison, a high security prison in, in London. He's been in there since April, ever since he was uh, expelled from the Ecuadorian embassy after his asylum was revoked under the new president, Lenin Moreno, in uh, Ecuador. Uh, so I ask Noam to explain what his thoughts are on this situation with Julian Assange. He uh, recently was in court uh, leading up to an extradition hearing that's coming up in February where he could be extradited to the United States. He faces 18 charges. Noam breaks that down too. He explains basically the British government is murdering Assange. Um, his health is deteriorating really rapidly. So I really wanted to highlight the case of Assange because this is being used as a example. They're trying to set an example. These governments, the British government, the U.S. government, uh, they're trying to use this treatment of whistleblowers like Assange, like Chelsea Manning, like Edward Snowden, like the other whistleblowers that I can't think of right now, because there's n numerous examples of this, where the U.S. government tries to make an example of them. And Assange is one of the most extreme cases, I think. And regardless of your personal opinions about who Assange is, you know whether you agree with his decisions as a publisher of this information, you need to put that aside for a moment and understand that... Uh, this is symbolic, and this is the real person that's being destroyed for revealing the truth about the U.S. government and its crimes. We're watching it play out, and, you know, what can we do except watch this horror show unfold? It's really disturbing and really needs to be highlighted, and it's the responsibility of journalists, of people who care about the truth, to speak up for Assange. Right now is the time to do it. So I just feel, again, really fortunate to have this time with Noam. It was great. I really thank him for the time, and I thank you all for listening. Here is my interview with Professor Noam Chomsky. Um, how are you doing? I'm sorry about the frustrating technical issues, but how are you doing? Well, I'm upright. 91. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah, no, I, I, uh, I just wanted to just check in on you, um, see how you're doing. You've been doing some interviews lately, so I thank you for taking the time to talk with me. I really appreciate it. I um, 
don't need to sit here and, uh, you know, tell you how much, uh, you know, I appreciate you as a, as a person or anything. I think that that doesn't need to be said, but I, again, I just really appreciate you for what you've done and thank you for the time. Okay, let's plunge in. All right, let's do this. Um, so uh, the first thing I wanted to discuss was, I guess, your general sense of what's going on geopolitically with the United States. Uh, I guess the very general question I would ask right away is, do you get this sense that the United States as a global empire, as a military geopolitical force in the world is expanding or is it a stable uh, entity or is it in decline? Uh, what is your general sense based on the trends of what's going on in that realm? Well, if we look over the long term, uh, the United States has been in decline since 1945. The U.S. had reached the peak of its power uh, in 1945, at the end of the Second World War, in fact, a, a, a level of power that had never existed in world history. Uh, the United States control, it was far and away the richest country in the world. It had gained enormously through the war. Uh, industrial production quadrupled. Uh, the United States was, of course, untouched by the war. Its rivals had been seriously harmed or destroyed. Uh, it had probably 40, 50% of world wealth. Statistics weren't very good in those days, but something roughly like that. Uh, security was incomparable. Controlled the Western Hemisphere, controlled both oceans, controlled the opposite sides of both oceans. Uh, uh, it was just incomparable. But it started to decline right away. Uh, the first step was uh, in 1949 when uh, China became independent. In the United States, that's called loss of China, which is a pretty revealing expression. It was assumed that we own the world, and uh, the loss of China was a terrible event. It goes on. By the uh, 1970s, the world economy was pretty much tripolar with the uh, US based North America, uh, uh, German based uh, Europe, uh, at that time, Japan based uh, Northeast Asia, already the most uh, dynamic region, uh, now later China and the East Asian Tiger. And the uh, US share of global income had declined to maybe. 25%, which is still enormous, but not like 45. Uh, if we proceed uh, further, uh, pretty much the same tendencies. Uh, but uh, there are big, uh, uh, I mean, militarily, of course, the U.S. is just totally incomparable. I mean, no, no other country uh, has uh, uh, 800 military bases uh, around the world, and nobody has even a dozen. If you look at global power, uh, the U.S. is, again, incomparable. Uh, you can see it very clearly in the use of sanctions. Uh, no other country can impose sanctions. The U.S. can impose sanctions wherever it wants, and it forces other countries to adhere to them, because the U.S. controls the global financial system. Uh, there's another 
change that's taken place during the neoliberal globalization process. The uh, uh, the national income, which is what is usually measured, doesn't mean as much as it used to. Uh, a, a different measure, and maybe more insightful measure of global power, is the amount of global wealth owned by domestically based multinationals. And if you look at those figures, it's astonishing. Uh, US-based multinationals control about half of world wealth. And by now, the statistics are good. Uh, they're, they're first in practically every category. Uh, this is changing somewhat under Trump's uh, wrecking ball. We don't know exactly how that'll work out, but it's fundamentally the same. So, yes, the U.S. is still the dominant global power, but it has uh, limits that it didn't have in the past. Hmm. Okay. Yeah, and that's something I wanted to discuss. The United States pulled out of, well, I shouldn't say that it pulled out of Syria, but it withdrew support of the Kurds, of the, the people of northern Syria, which is a rather controversial move. There was a lot of blowback or, or um, uh, reaction to that decision. Um, and I, I wanted to get your sense of, of other world powers coming in and maybe filling in uh, the role that the United States played in particularly in Syria, um, but maybe in other regions around the world as well, which can be an indication of the U.S. Uh, military's lack of control that it may have, may have once had in these regions. So maybe using Syria as a specific example, uh, again, pointing to those trends of, of U.S. military decline globally. Uh, what, do you, what do you make of that? Well, first of all, Trump's... Uh sudden withdrawal of a small U.S. contingent in the Kurdish-dominated areas and his invitation of to Turkey to expand their aggression and atrocities against the Kurds. Well, that was a grotesque betrayal, not the first. There's a long history of it, of the Kurdish, of the Kurds in Syria basically handed them over to their main enemies, uh, Turkey and uh, Assad's, uh, Assad's uh, uh, Syria. Uh, the Russians stepped in and are uh, controlled. But now the Russians he basically invited Russia to intervene to be the moderate power that would try to calm things down, and to some extent they're doing it. Uh, the United States didn't leave North northern northeast Syria, which has moved its troops to the oil-producing regions. The number of troops is about the same. Uh, other troops went to Iraq right across the border, and the Iraqi government doesn't want them there. So that happens. But if you look back a couple of years, around two, uh, 2011, 2012, the United States and other Western powers assumed that it would be possible to overthrow the Assad regime, and uh, not just them, but the Gulf states too. And they were all uh, intervening, uh, supporting their local allies, uh, pouring arms in, in an effort to overthrow the Assad regime. 
uh, the CIA sent uh, uh, advanced weapons uh, to its groups they were supporting. And that did succeed in uh, stopping Assad's offensive anti-tank weapons. But quite predictably, it brought the Russians in. 2015, the Russians intervened in force to block the uh, U.S. Gulf supported uh, by then mostly jihadi-based elements. And uh, Russia, the U.S. was not going to counter Russia leading to a nuclear war. So it sort of pulled back, uh, and uh, Assad has slowly, uh, with Russian and Iranian aid, uh, has uh, reconquered most of the country. The part that, for some parts that are not yet under Assad's control, uh, Idlib province, where most of the uh, uh, ISIS and other jihadi groups are located, and uh, northeast Syria, which is under Kurdish control. Uh, that will probably now be abandoned to uh, some combination of Assad and uh, Turkey with Russia being the, uh, the dominant uh, external force. Uh, the, uh, there's another U.S. base for the South that's remaining. But in effect, uh, Trump uh, did uh, authorize uh, uh, Turkey, uh, Russia, Iran to fill uh, a gap in uh, uh, domination of, of Syria. Uh, this is uh, uh, this was strongly opposed by the U.S. military, the diplomatic uh, centers, uh, not for good reasons, in my opinion. Uh, but anyway, what opposed by them? The Trump just overrode uh, other areas of the world. You just have to look at in the wrong terms. But uh, general. Uh, the U.S. is very far from withdrawing troops in the region. In fact, while all this was going on, Trump sent thousands of additional troops to Saudi Arabia uh, to support their uh, murderous war in Yemen. Uh, so it's, uh, it's very far from uh, withdrawal from the Middle East. It's reshaping it. Uh, there's a kind of a geostrategic strategy in the background. Uh, namely, the effort to construct an alliance of the most reactionary states in the region, uh, the Gulf dictatorships, Sisi's, uh, uh, Sisi's, uh, Egypt, the brutal dictatorship, uh, Israel, which has moved very far to the right. And its alliance with the Gulf states has become more evident in the past couple of years, especially under Trump. And uh, to use this, uh, have links with uh, other reactionary forces, uh, Modi in uh, India, some of the so-called illiberal democracies in Europe, uh, Orban's Hungary, uh, Salvini's Italy, and so on. And uh, uh, this is incidentally described quite openly uh, and frankly by uh, Steve Bannon, who's kind of in the background as an advisor. But that's what's been taking shape uh, as a kind of a base for U.S. power in the region with many uncertainties as to how it would develop. But it's, the, the general point is the U.S. is not withdrawing from the, what Trump calls endless wars, still deeply involved in them. Okay. Yeah, I understand. Um... 
I, I guess I want to point to, I guess the next thing that I would like to discuss is the state of journalism um, and uh, particularly whistleblowing in this time. I want to point to Julian Assange, at least at first, uh, and get your, your thoughts on what's currently unfolding with him. Uh, he is now in uh, Belmarsh Prison. He's in Belmarsh Prison in London. He's been there since April, since he was forcefully removed from the Ecuadorian embassy and the asylum that he had there. Um, there was recently a report that came out where he was in court. Um, the report says that he was fighting back tears. He said he couldn't think properly. He couldn't understand the court proceedings. He had a hard time even recalling, I think, his own name, uh, uh, the date, even. Um, what do you make of this case? And and not just of him, but also how the media has, in a general sense, the, the U.S. media in particular, has covered what's happening to Assange and WikiLeaks and whistleblowing in general. U.S. media and the British media as well. Uh, Assange is basically being murdered by the British government. He's held, I mean, his uh, uh, being sequestered in the uh, Ecuadorian embassy it was bad enough. The embassy, incidentally, I visited him there as a kind of like a small apartment. Uh, he was basically stuck in a couple, in one or two rooms, couldn't even, I mean, in many ways, it's worse than being in prison. At least prisoners are allowed to go into the yard and see the sun. He couldn't go out. It was plainly uh, psychologically very difficult it would be for anyone. Uh, now they've, after the right-wing government in Ecuador expelled him, uh, he was taken over by the British. He's in a, a high-security prison uh, under uh, uh, very harsh conditions. Uh, all of this for the crime of skipping bail. You know, usually you get a, a, a fine for that. And his treatment, the people People who've seen him at that court scene that you mentioned and have visited him and say that his, his health is sharply deteriorating and uh, he's being treated in a way which is basically destroying him. Uh, there is an extradition hearing coming up. Uh, I, how it'll turn out, I you don't know. The British will probably extradite him to the United States where he'll be tried with... Uh, crimes that uh, even uh, theoretically can lead to the death sentence, uh, but he's already practically suffering it. And uh, as for the media, they're uh, simply uh, supporting this, or either not reporting it or saying, yeah, it's the right thing, because he's a hideous criminal who revealed to the world uh, things that the U.S. government doesn't want populations to know should be regarded as... Uh, Meanwhile, the same media uh, eagerly uh, exploit the revelations that come out from the WikiLeaks. So that's that's basically what I have to say about Assange. Um, is there any legal precedent to this, though? I mean, I, I feel like what's happening is extra extra legal, as in this is not uh, something that's been. It's like I think that what they're doing seems to be outside of the bounds of international law. Is that true? Or is this something that can be seen as a precedent? Is there something we can look to in the past as being an example of what they're doing today? 
it's probably not technical. I mean, there are, you know, it's uh, the UN rapporteur on torture uh, has described it as in violation of uh, conventions on uh, torture and uh, uh, and uh, treatment of prisoners. But whether that's violation of international law, you could debate. Uh, however, talking about international law is a, a bit of a joke. I mean, there are gross violations of international law uh, that nobody even mentions. So uh, in this century, uh, the uh, most extreme violation of international law was the uh, US-UK invasion of, of Iraq. That's a textbook example of aggression with no credible pretext. It's what uh, the Nuremberg Tribunal and general international law regard as the supreme international crime, uh, differing from other war crimes in that it encompasses the totality of what happens uh, uh, then and afterwards, which include uh, the uh, creation of uh, the breakup of Iraq, the killing of hundreds of thousands of people, uh, millions of refugees, uh, inciting ethnic conflicts, which have spread tearing the whole region apart, uh, leading to the birth of ISIS and so on. Uh, that's an extraordinary international crime. Has anybody said anything about it? Mm. Yeah, no. International laws for the weak. Mm. Okay. Um, and so, I mean, this really comes back to the threat, What are the implications of what this court case is, this extradition hearing for Assange. What is this, do you think? Do you think the, the long-term implications of this, as far as our ability to have whistleblowers, uh, the kind of the kind of information that journalists are able to use uh, in general. I mean, that's kind of one of the fears about re- whether or not you love or or hate Assange as a person and what he may have done personally uh, as a publisher of this uh, information. The real fear is that it's going to have a real impact on the freedom of press. Uh, do you get that sense, or is that already long gone? Are we way past that point? I'm afraid it's it's another case and an extreme case of the use of state power, uh, the U.S. in the background, but Britain is the is the country that's uh, implementing it. Uh, use of state power to uh, prevent to punish uh, the release to the public of information that power systems don't want them to have. Mm-hmm. That's basically what it amounts to. Okay. And yes, that's certainly a message to uh, uh, journalists everywhere. Uh, not that it's new. It's by no means the first time, even though, or even the most extreme. You know, after all, uh, uh, people have been uh, deported, uh, imprisoned, uh, all sorts of things. Mm-hmm. Okay. So is this? A, I guess. I guess just to point to this. I mean, is this a? To you, is this an indication that we are past a point where real substantial journalism is being thoroughly undermined and threatened? I mean, I I really think about what it means to be a journalist in an authoritarian state um, and what the, you know, real risks that come with doing real journalism is right now, you know? 
um, it's it's rather bleak, I guess. And I just wanted to get your sense of what <laughs> what people who are getting into journalism right now what they can really expect and what they're coming up against. Well, you know, it's uh, I wouldn't say it's crossed the border. We've been through much worse in the past. So uh, take Woodrow Wilson's Red Scare, uh, right after the First World War. I mean, about thousands of people were deported. The independent press was virtually crushed. Uh, It uh, was a massive attack on human rights. The so-called McCarthy period uh, uh, was, was about the same. The Trump period is uh, innovating in a way which is familiar from totalitarian states. The entire uh, system of the United States under Trump is becoming a kind of uh, proto-fascism without the ideology, uh, just the uh, pertinences of fascism. Uh, One of those is to totally destroy the information system so that the concept of truth, uh, fact, uh, accuracy just fades into oblivion. And the way they're doing it is just by flooding the information system with uh, fakery, uh, perfectly conscious uh, lying deceit uh, on every imaginable topic, uh, uh, trivial or important, uh, to the point where people just uh, kind of have to sort of abandon the effort to try to find out what's true or false. Of course, you can still do it if you work at it. But for much of the population, it means that the whole concept of uh, accuracy, truth, uh, uh, fact, and so on kind of dissolves. That's a very uh, uh, effective way of uh, undermining uh, public uh, engagement in uh, any uh, of the decisions that matter in the world, in other words, is destroying democratic function. And uh, Trump is a master at it. It's working very well. He's he's got a kind of an adoring constituency uh, for whom he can do do no wrong. Uh, Facts are what he says. Uh, There may be around 40% of the population or more. Very solid base. The Republican Party... uh, is terrified of that base will won't do anything to cross Trump, who's their God. Uh, some sectors of it, like uh, evangelicals, who are a big uh, segment of the population in the United States, are almost totally in line in support of their hero and so on. But this is, it's, it's wrong to describe this as fascism. Gives it too much credit has basically no ideology behind it. The ideology for Trump is just me, whatever's important to me. But it has some of the features of uh, totalitarian systems and uh, undermining the media and uh, creating the uh, uh, anger, uh, 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 distrust uh, uh, regarding the uh, media as some kind of enemy. Uh, that's... Uh, a good way to uh, undermine democratic function. Okay. That's happening for sure. Okay. Um, I'm afraid I have another appointment coming up. 
Okay. Yeah, that's totally fine. Um, thank you for the time, Noam. Sorry for the disruptions. <laughs> that's okay. Um, yeah, thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Last Born in the Wilderness. If you would like to learn more about this podcast, go to the website lastborninthewilderness.com. Everything you need to know will be on that website. If you would like to support this project monetarily, here are a few options. You can send a one-time donation through PayPal. Go to paypal.me slash lastbornpodcast, and you can treat that a bit like a tip jar. If you like this episode or any other episode of this podcast in particular, consider throwing a few bucks Patrick's way. That would be really helpful. And if you would really like to sustain this work and support this project more regularly, consider supporting this project through Patreon. Go to patreon.com slash lastborninthewilderness and donate to the production of this podcast for $1 or more a month. And by doing that, you'll gain early access to these interviews and discussions before the official public release. If you'd like to drop Patrick a line and have your message featured, there are two ways to do that. For those in the United States, you can call the phone number 208-918-2837 and leave a voicemail message up to three minutes in length. Or you can drop an audio file by following the instructions through the link in the description of this episode. As the great psychedelic bard Terrence McKenna said, take it easy, dude, but take it. That's it? That's all you sent me? Yeah, that's it. Do you want me to say anything else? Last Born in the Wilderness is quality content that can truly improve the way that you see the world and the way that you think about yourself.